Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Over 250,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 23rd episode, our returning guest is Sean Spicer. But before we get to that, I need to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. For you, the listeners of the Rob Burgess Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. A book which pertains to this episode is Democracy of Sound, Music Piracy and the Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century by Alex Cummings. Whatever book you pick, you can exchange it at any time, you can cancel at any time, and the books are yours to keep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show for your free audiobook. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available. Whether it's iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, or RSS, you can find links to everything on the official website, www.therobburgessshow.com. You can also find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Back to today's show. You first heard Sean Spicer on the very first episode of this podcast. Sean has traveled tens of thousands of miles by heel, thumbs, wheels, and wit. By the time he was 30 years old, he had hiked the length of South Korea, hitchhiked across America, and somehow along the way managed to serve with the 101st Airborne Division and study philosophy at UC Berkeley. Driven by an intense need to redefine the impossible as well as himself, he now resides in his home state of California and is slowly teaching his son how to road trip. Ten years ago, he began a long walk, which is chronicled in his new book, Guerrilla Camping. You can find out more at his website, guerrillacamping.net. That's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-C-A-M-P-I-N-G dot N-E-T. You can find the book on Amazon at tinyurl.com forward slash H58Q9KO. Those are all lowercase letters, by the way. A quick programming note. On this episode, Sean was kind enough to grace us with some of his mashup creations, so you'll hear a few of his songs played throughout the episode. You can find him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash DJS4, and that's the number four. And those are lowercase letters as well. And now on to the show. All right, so I suppose we can begin. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, uh, welcome back to the Rob Burgess Show, Sean Spicer. Good to be back, all these lost episodes. <laughs> or should you know, I... People are going to be curious about it in 50 years. <laughs> That's right. Uh, or should I say tonight, DJ S4? Yeah, um, one of my many, many nomenclatures. Um, 
One that's actually been bandied about recently um, is the nomenclature hag cell. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're aware that uh, DEF CON just ended in Las Vegas. Mm-mm. Okay. Are you, do you know what DEF CON is? No, but I was just agreeing <laughs> for the moment. Okay. Um, DEF CON is a computer security conference Okay. Um, that goes on every year in Vegas. The last time I was there was in 1992 or 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have a number of friends and professional associates who make the uh, journey out there every year. Um, this year I had a number of friends that were going out there for the first time, um, who all seemed to think that I would still be in touch with everyone. Um, and I'm not, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of very interesting things come out of there. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a hacker conference, mm. um, which is kind of where I came in backwards into music. Um, so back in, wow, 91, there was a technology called mod trackers that allowed you to do very weird things with sound cards on a computer. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was running a BBS um, that kind of catered to the computer underground. And one of the people who was on the BBS, um, he and I hung out in social circles as well. And he was very into electronic music, um, which at the time was just called um, pretty much underground. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if the term techno was being used yet. It was still just kind of under this broad banner of electronic music. Mm-hmm. So the difference between what would become acid bass and the work that had been done by um, Laurie Anderson in the 70s and Kraftwerk mm-hmm. was all kind of lumped together as electronic music. Mm-hmm. And I got involved uh, doing mod trackers. Um, back then, computers didn't have the storage nor the sound capabilities uh, to really store music. Uh, the compression format for MP3s uh, was still another seven years away, eight years away. Um, so sampling on a computer was prohibitive. You could use a computer to, um, con- pardon me, to control a sampler. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fatboy Slim used an Amiga that actually triggered external hardware samplers. Um, and an Amiga is a computer from the mid-'80s. And so coming out of the computer underground into the electronic music underground really gave me kind of a pirate's perspective on music. Mm-hmm. It was what you could get away with. Mm. Um, so have you heard anything about what's been going on with De La Soul? Lately? Yep. No, I, I have not heard anything lately from De La Soul. One of the reasons why you haven't heard anything lately from De La Soul is that De La Soul has never had an album available for digital download or streaming. Well, that's because of the sampling, you know, clearance rights, I'm sure, right, with Prince Paul and all that, you know, with the heavy sampling on the, you know, Three Feet High and Rising. Right, well, actually on all their albums. Mm, Well, yeah. But at issue is the fact that all of those samples were cleared for De La Soul's recordings on tape, album, and CD. Mm. And there's another phrase that should have been in those contracts that is, and other methods as yet undiscovered. Right, because how could they anticipate what was going to happen? Right. And so what Warner Brothers Music is saying, or not saying, but hinting at, is that they are concerned that the original rights holders of those samples will come back knowing the success of De La Soul and demand something that would be akin to what happened with Paul's Boutique, 
which is for a long time Paul's Boutique was out of print because it was it was something like 120 percent royalties that needed to be paid in order to clear the samples for sale. Mm-hmm. So they would have to pay 20 cents on every dollar they made in order to pay for the samples that were on the album. Mm -hmm. And the way that record labels were getting around that was to acquire the labels that own the copyrights. And that's what eventually allowed Paul's Boutique to be re-released. Wow. Was eventually enough record labels were owned that it was no longer a um, a negative sum game in order to put that album out. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> yes. So, De La Soul suddenly popped up on my social networks and through, I believe it was the email list for Humble Bundle. Mm-hmm. Um, they just popped up out of nowhere um, about a year or two ago mm-hmm. and said, hey, we're giving away our entire back catalog. Mm-hmm. Go here, put in your email address, and you can download it. Mm. And about three months later, they announced a Kickstarter campaign. And they raised $20,000 in the first eight hours, finished up somewhere around $60,000, and they're really coming out anywhere in the next weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty imminent. Prince Paul's working on it. Um, old talent. Um, but this time, they've actually gone and produced their own music mm-hmm. and then gone back and sampled it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get back into that pirate nature that I had approaching electronic music, um, I started DJing in God, um, early 95, late 94. Um, I had been doing some stuff on computer mod tracking. I'd played in punk bands, which again has that very strong, uh, pirate and DIY ethic to it. Mm-hmm. And I started DJing with a bunch of guys that I was in the Army with. And it was, one of us had a record player, somebody else had a mixer from Radio Shack, somebody else had another record player. We all had CD players. And we would figure out, like, none of this was DJ quality equipment. Mm -hmm. We would figure out how to get all of this stuff working together and how to get things enough on beat that we could play. Mm Mm-hmm. And there were five or six of us uh, that all kind of played together. And I certainly was not the most talented at the time. Um, But thankfully, at that time, a lot of electronic music, actually today, a lot of electronic music, if you spin within a certain genre, everything sits at the same beats per minute. Mm-hmm. So you really don't have a whole lot of adjusting to do. You just have to make sure you hit the beats on top of each other before you fade them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to think when I first started going kind of cross genre. Um, for a while, I spent um, kind of what was called acid bass. Um, at the time, it was all just techno. Mm-hmm. But I was very into acid bass. But at the same time, I was into 60s psychedelia. So it wasn't uncommon for me to throw just a riff because I didn't have any ability to loop. I didn't have turntables I could juggle with. Um, I would just throw a riff um, off of some obscure, weird record that I'd picked up downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, once I was in San Francisco, I was getting more and more into backpack hip hop. Um, so the underground hip hop of the late nineties, uh, the early aughts. Mm-hmm. And I started producing and I was producing sample based. 
And I put up a Craigslist ad or something. Um, I met one guy, um, Rel, um, who went by Cesar Bajor, um, at a, um, at a BART station. Mm. Um, and he just t- started talking to me because I was bobbing my head and I had big headphones on. Um, and I gathered a menagerie of four or five guys um, that I was doing production with. And we went out and we played our first live show. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting behind a computer mm. doing nothing. Mm. I was hitting play <laughs> because everything was so orchestrated. Mm. And I'm like, I can't do this. Um, so I went back to that kind of 94 um, reality of what can I get cheap? What can I do this live with? And I started sampling and I started sampling live. Um, I started a, um, nightclub night called composition named after the composition books, Mm. which for me is just the ultimate icon of creativity. Here's just this blank slate you can get for a dollar at big lots, (laughs) um, and pour your soul out into, you can write comic books, you can write stories, um, you can actually write music in them. you can fold paper airplanes, I guess, if you want origami. Um, but the flyers were all modeled after the front cover of, comp- of, composi- of the composition book. And the idea was to bring electronic producers together in a place where it was safe to just come in and hit play. Mm-hmm. So you come in with a CD player or a CD, drop it into a deck in this nightclub, have a glorious sound system to hear your work on, um, and get to meet other people who did it. Because they're really wasn't a open mic um, kind of environment that electronic music producers could come share their work and meet each other. Mm-hmm. And his name escapes me. Um, started with a T, but one night this guy comes in and he, he had an ego a mile wide, mm-hmm. um, which was actually kind of deserved. He was good. Um, but really it was kind of an egoless space. So this guy coming in like, I'm a rock star, um, was kind of like, okay. One day he comes in with this guy, Mike, and he's like, yo, where do I plug in my microphone? I'm like, I can do that here. We'll just plug it in right here. The mixer will get you up there. And all of a sudden this guy's playing his electronic production and this guy, Mike is rapping over the top of it Mm. within four months. Composition was known as the place where San Francisco MCs could connect with electronic and sample-based producers mm. and come and freestyle over a never-ending uh, concert of tracks. Mm-hmm. And from there, um, a number of us got together, um, and the record label Paraffin was formed. Um, mm-hmm. Only one album came out of that, a couple singles. But suddenly there was a movement, mm-hmm. and suddenly I'm playing more live shows. And right around that point, um, Randy, who I believe you know, who uh, was the general manager of the Cat Club, uh, wanted to put together a night called Rocket. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind Rocket was really was all around um, the Run DMC song "Walk This Way." Mm-hmm. He loved the idea of rock. And hip hop mm-hmm. hitting each other. Um, at the time, um, a remix style that would later be known as mashups was starting to blow up. Mm-hmm. 
and I was tasked um, as one of two resident DJs in the back room along with Otter Pop, um, who is somebody you should actually get on the show. Um, she has her PhD in Joy Division, <laughs> and she teaches in England. She is amazing, um, and she's currently uh, working on her second book. Um, her first book was, I believe, called Joy Devotion, mm. which was about the importance of fan culture. Mm. And she's currently working on a book on vinyl culture. Um, and I know one of the people she just interviewed uh, was uh, Fat Mike from Mike Records or nice. from uh, Fat Records. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she would be a blast to interview. I'm sure. Sure. Um, and suddenly, I went from being into very obtuse, weird music, uh, like a lot of the stuff coming off of Rhyme Sayers, Anticon, um, a bunch of really unheard of underground hip-hop labels. Mm -hmm. And now I'm DJing to hundreds of indie rockers every Saturday night. (laughs) And I'm tasked with spinning rock and hip-hop at the same time. Mm -hmm. So... I would spend every Saturday night, I'd get paid, and I would spend all Sunday happily wandering the thrift stores and record stores of turn of the century San Francisco. Mm. Um, And by turn of the century, I mean that rents were $4,000 for a one-bedroom yet. (laughs) Um, So they hadn't run off or shut down all of the weird little uh, nooks and crannies of record stores that you'd find on the lower hate, on the uh, Southern Fillmore, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could just go out all day and dig through crates, Mm -hmm. spend $100, and walk home with 100 pounds in records. Mm. Um, And I would spend all week alternately looking through those records for new breakbeats, new samples for the production work I was doing mm-hmm. and for stuff that I could play um, on Saturday nights to this very pop crowd. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me musically because I've never had, um, pardon my language, I've never given a fuck about pop sensibility. Um, if it's really popular, I might like it, in 10 years mm. when I rediscover it. Um, if it's on the top 40, I'm probably annoyed that I have to listen to the radio in my car. <laughs> um, so being forced to keep up with like what is on the forefront of indie rock or yeah, indie rock was what alternative rock became, mm. um, nonsense labels, um, and hip hop. Um, and this was, you know, the whole, um, the second coming of Jay-Z, Chingy, um, the Yin-Yang Twins. Um, yeah, um, pretty mindless stuff, but really rockin' beats. But I was also able to draw on hip-hop from 78 on, mm-hmm. and my only focus was to rock the dance floor. And one of the things I would do during the week while I was working on doing production for various MCs and whatnot, doing recordings, um, I would try to put together remixes. They weren't called mashups yet. Um, remixes that were rock and hip-hop, um, one of which you've heard, um, which was a contentious one, um, which was uh, Sweet Home Country Grammar. 
I love it. Yes, which was a mashup of Sweet Home Alabama and Nelly's Country Grammar. Works perfectly. It came to me.
crusade that I am really alone in <laughs> in the world because um, everyone loves that song. Um, so it's kind of hard to like tell people but yeah, but see, he's they're commenting on Neil Young's Southern Man and you know, they're really just defending their own you know, racism and, and stuff because it's like, listen to what they say here and you know, at the end of the day it's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's a good song, you know right, what I mean? But the whole line, the whole line in Birmingham, they love the governor. Boo, you know, boo, you, boo. <laughs> you know, we all did what we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. They weren't saying that they backed the governor. 
They were saying they really didn't love the governor. It's these guys in Birmingham. Well, we're not from Birmingham. We're a bunch of rockers with long hair. Mm-hmm. We get hassled down here, too, but this is our home, and we love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole line about Neil Young is a southern man, the song Neil Young sang, a southern man doesn't need him around. Like, okay, dude, whatever, sing your song. We don't care. This is our place. I mean, it was a yeehaw party anthem. Um, which, so is country grammar. Yeah, no, and uh, and it's funny because I was just listening to the country grammar the other day, and I was remembering in high school, and of course I went to high school in southern Indiana, and we got so excited that, first of all, Midwest rap was just coming up. Um, it was like, yeah, there had been Bone Thugs, yes, there had been, you know, this and that, but... Yeah, in a major way, you're, you mentioned Chingy. That was also mm-hmm. uh, another St. Louis rapper. We had yep. uh, Nelly. Uh, we had Eminem, of course, around the same time. Um, you know, it, it, you can just the list goes on, and there was all these like you know, every it was every region got its little turn, you know, in the spotlight, and finally, the Midwest was finally getting some attention, you know, in, in high school. And I remember when people would listen to country grammar when that. Uh, beat stops for a second he's like back up to indiana and people were like yeah (laughs) but uh i realized in retrospect what they were what he was actually talking about is that all the because the line preceding that is uh all my folks up in the slammer from whatever whatever up to indiana indiana Mm -hmm. is the home of several several uh federal correctional facilities (laughs) uh including pendleton uh, where uh mike tyson was um um, you know, like, like it's like <laughs> it's not a great thing to be known for necessarily in, in some ways, but it was right, it was ex- it was exciting. Same way it, it was exciting during Ludacris's area codes when he said three one seven, and you know that's Indianapolis's area code. Coming up as a California boy, uh-huh. I had hip hop from the beginning. I mean, I didn't have it in the in the New York days, mm-hmm. but I mean, I was still shitting my diapers. <laughs> um, but that was around. You know, I kind of discovered hip hop, um, but I always had local hip hop, um, and so that that um, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a diaspora, um, but talking about Midwest hip hop, um, are you familiar with um, Lime Sayers? Well, of course, out of uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. yeah, of course. Would you consider them part of that movement? To a certain degree, although I felt like there were a lot less commercial maybes than some of those other rappers oh, I mentioned. Uh, you know, because they, you know, Slug is like the owner of Rhyme Sayers or one of them. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like, it's an end, it's very much, I feel like it's more of a punk rock DIY thing as opposed to, uh, you know, Eminem and, and Nelly and Chingy who kind of just, you know, they, they latched on to an existing, you know what I mean? Right. They, they, they all, but they all signed to major labels or whatever. Rhyme Sayers mm-hmm. is its own. And entity. I mean, maybe they have some, uh, you know, distribution deal with somebody or whatever. But for the most part, they're pretty independent, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a little yeah. bit different. I, I yes, I would. I would still consider them Midwestern hip hop, but I just don't think of them in the same way, you know, because I don't feel like they. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. Another uh, Detroit rapper, uh, Fifty Cent. If I recall, he was from Detroit, wasn't he? No, he's from New York City. He was from New York? Okay. Because he was discovered by Eminem. 
Yes. Um, yes. Or Dr. Dre or whoever. But yes. It was somebody. Eminem who signed him and brought him onto Dre's label. Yes. Um, yeah, when he's got that line, uh, when you sound like Eminem, you get all the group he loves. Um, <laughs> but he discovered him from mixtapes. Oh, yeah. I know. I, and I remember he's not been signed. <laughs> yeah. He had an independent hit, uh, How to Rob. Yep. Yep. That's what I was going to bring up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that got him noticed, I though, because... I of going home with an R&B bitch waking up early and stealing all her shit. Um, <laughs> no, it was a hilarious it. song. Yeah. If, if, if I don't get rich off this rap game, mm-hmm. I'm just going to be a robber for the rest of my life. It's hilarious. Um, and that, But it was funny because he got his name out there because, and then in the aftermath of that, people were like, you know, who, you know, they were dropping, like, who's this 50 Cent? You know, like, they were all, like, you know, responding to his uh, threats of, of robbery <laughs> In the other well, side. for years, for years after, um, and I'm sure this is something that has happened before in popular music, uh-huh. um, but I think one of the biggest examples of our generation was the Biggie Tupac, the East Coast, West Coast thing. Mm. And for years after that, it was really accepted that if you want to come up, you start a battle mm-hmm. with somebody bigger than you, and you make them say your name. Mm. And the source... Um, which I don't even know if it's still in publication. I'm sure it's still a website, um, which was the uh, word up of the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. The source would hype these beasts up, mm. and there'd be some no-name from Podunk, Minnesota, who decided that he was going to drop someone's name on a mixtape. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be all this beef, and this guy's getting all this coverage. Mm-hmm. And you keep running with that beef... And somebody who's got a opposing label will pick you up and sign you mm. to carry the beef. Mm. Um, and a lot of people were getting signed for that. Mm. Um, and I don't know that that's so much the case anymore. I think the Internet has softened a lot of that, um, that people can be discovered. I mean, hell, Justin Bieber had a YouTube channel where he played piano and acted like a girl. Um, and now look at him. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't play piano anymore. Mm-mm. He still acts like a girl. Um, and he falls see what in. I did there? I started beef with Justin Bieber. I'm going to be famous in a week. <laughs> or unless he's falling through the trap door on the stage, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, um, I don't know if you've listened to it. Um, designer's song, Panda. I sure have, yeah. That happened overnight. Mm-hmm. Because Kanye picked it up. Right, because it was on and, his latest uh, album, right? He used mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm going to leave the conversation about trap um, for another day. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to decide what I what I feel about it. Um, I think there are a few songs that are clever, mm-hmm. but I just think the uh, raw minimalism of it, um, it's going to take me some time to digest. Um, after having come up with Cool Her Grandmaster Flash um, and up through like Black Alicious where you start having just intense lyrical power um, and then abstract artists like Dose One um, who could do things with their tongue that were probably pornographic <laughs> um, and now it's yeah 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 mm-hmm. um, over an incredibly minimal beat produced in Fruity Loops. Uh-huh. But at the same time, am I a 40-year-old 
when um, the Sex Pistols came out mm-hmm. or the Ramones came out mm-hmm. and going, this music is so simple and it's kind of off tune. Do they even know what they're doing? Um, and I think one of the reasons why you're seeing the the increase of or the reduction of complexity in hip-hop mm-hmm. is the problems involved in sampling. Mm. Is you can't take the complexity of sampling anymore. Mm. Um, particularly as a DOI upstart artist and go, oh, I'm going to throw a track on top of this old breakbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully, you've got things like SoundCloud, um, Beatbox, um, a bunch of places where you can go find producers, listen to their tracks, buy their tracks, get exclusive rights for their tracks for you know a couple hundred dollars, and put that shit on your mixtape. Mm-hmm. Um, no clearances, no paying lawyers, no winding up 30 years down the line unable to release any of your back albums mm-hmm. because Warner Records is refusing to play with it. Um, so I think part of it is a response to that. Um, and it's also the DIY ethic that for next to nothing, you can get music production software, put this stuff together on a $200 laptop, um, record it with a $50 mic, and get it out there. Um, I just think the stuff that's making it on the radio is not of the quality it could be. And I'm not spending enough time really digging deep to find out who's really good out there. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever the threads pop up on Reddit or on the Facebook hip hop groups that I'm part of, um, where, oh, check out so and so, he's hype, oh my god, he's great. Like, no, you're somebody who grew up with Drake, you aren't allowed to say that somebody's great. Mm-hmm. Like, you just don't know what great is yet. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm also not hearing the politics in hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, so to take it back to some of those mixes that I was dropping, um, you know, you've got 600 indie rock kids dancing around in the background of a club. I mean, what is the ultimate white person song? Africa by Toto. Um, I miss the rains down in Africa. What's the ultimate anti-white person song? I'm an African by Dead Prez.
kissing niggas got the gold. Got the gold. Got the gold. Uh, also, the Peter Tosh song, uh, uh, You Are African. <laughs> mm-hmm. I still rock with that one, but not when I'm with other people. <laughs> Ooh. I definitely well, rock that one alone. <laughs> well, you know, times have changed, and I don't have a uh, CD uh, swapper in my car anymore. I've got a thumb drive. Mm. But I will say this. I have had dead prez in my car since the first day I got the new stereo system put in. Wow. Um, I still, still love them. Um, I don't care if they beat me up. (laughs) They say some very relevant things. Their song Wolves, Mm. um, I play usually once or twice a month. Um, It's just something that needs to be called out. Mm. Um, And when I say play once or twice a month, I'm talking about playing it at my current DJ residency at Last Call. Mm. Um, but to take it back on that Toto Dead Prez tip, mm-hmm. I went and let everybody imagine their little boat shoes and everything else, listening to Toto, missing the rains down in Africa, and I dropped Dead Prez over the top of it, and the beat fit, and the lyrics fit. Um, and that was another one of those juxtaposed mashups where one song was talking smack, about another. Mm. Um, but yeah, taking two songs that are wildly divergent um, was a game to me. Mm-hmm. And so I got back into DJing right around uh, Cinco de Mayo was my first uh, night DJing out. Mm-hmm. At that point, I had the new DJ decks for, I think, three weeks. Um, talked to one of the guys at the local dive bar. Hey, can I DJ on Thursdays? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and so I went from there. Um, I'm honestly having more fun DJing at home mm-hmm. than I am out because I have, I've been trained by DJing in San Francisco and actually making a living off it, that your success lies in filling bars and filling dance floors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if people aren't dancing, you're not winning. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I'm at now, what's starting to happen is something akin to back in those composition days. Mm-hmm. Um, so you haven't been to my neighborhood. Um, I live in Talmadge, which is right next to a little tiny area called Colina del Sol, also just broadly called City Heights. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, three or four mile stretch of El Cajon Boulevard that has, from the time I was a child, this area has never cleaned up. Um, right next to the bar are um, dueling hooker hotels, both both owned by the same family, um, that offer hourly rates with bus stops in front of each of them with lots of scantily clad ladies that are obviously going downtown to go to a party. <laughs> They're not waiting there to get picked up. <laughs> um, but it's a sketchy neighborhood. Um, a, lot, a lot of PCP, a lot of dope, um, a little bit of gang violence, a little bit of robbery, um, nothing that's going to face somebody who grew up in East County, L.A. in the early 90s, mm-hmm. um, but it's a, uh, it's a hood vibe. And I know one thing about living in the hood. Mm-hmm. The more people you know and the more people know you, the safer and safer and safer it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made it a point when I moved to the neighborhood, I'm going to know everybody. 
and everybody's going to know me. Mm-hmm. So I love this neighborhood. It's warm. It's comforting. There's families. Um, the weird divide we've got, um, the side of Elk Home Boulevard I live on is a lot of families. The other side is um, kind of like the Lion King. You don't go there. <laughs> um, and right there in the middle is where everybody meets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go in. I'm DJing at last call. And the dealers, the pimps, the prostitutes, um, the insane uh, old 70s tweakers um, come in and say hi. Mm-hmm. Well, one day, one of my buddies was up in there, and he starts spitting over the music that I'm playing. And for you people who aren't familiar with hip-hop or anything, spitting means that he's rapping. He wasn't literally spitting. This was not a Sex Pistols thing like, stop the spitting. Please, just anything. Stop the spitting. Um, no, it was not one of those situations. Uh-huh. He's just standing next to me, and he starts rapping over a break. Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, yeah? And so I extend the brake. I reach into my bag, and I pull out my old Shure SM58, plug it in. Yeah, I got a microphone. Here you go. And he started freestyling. Mm. And not every week, but, you know, two or three times a month, people come in. Hey, where's the microphone? Pull out the microphone, throw down some brakes. People rap. People get stuff off their chest. Um, and... That's honestly, those are my favorite nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm forced to do on those nights is, I mean, I've got a good uh, selection of instrumentals um, after DJing for a while that everybody does. Um, I've got the ability now with these wonderful high-tech digital decks that I can just sample and loop. So I can take a beat, start out, cut it out into eight measures, loop it, and keep that going. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I really like the bass line off of Seven Nation Army by White Stripes. Mm-hmm. And so I drop that bass line over the top, mm-hmm. and I'm looping that as well. Um, so now I've got the drums from song one, got the bass line from song two, and I've got them looped, and then I've got a guy on a microphone blown over the top. I'm able to cross out that bass line, and I want to bring in the synth line from, I don't know, let's say Joe Jackson. Mm-hmm. And now there's more of a the synth bass uh, stepping out. Mm. Um, and the guys are flowing over it. Mm-hmm. Now what's funny is the younger kids that come in, they want a song they know. And they get really frustrated and can't flow over the top of it. Mm-hmm. If they don't know the song. Um, and it's strange because every time I've ever been involved in freestyling, you don't even need a beat. You just need somebody to beatbox. I mean, just anything. Give it a beat. Um, mm-hmm. Battle rappers, in a lot of cases, when they're throwing ciphers and they're in battles, a lot of time there's no beat anymore, um, which gives you a lot more flexibility. You're not forced to hit every note. It's not like the blaze battles of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really appreciate kind of seeing a neighborhood come together around it mm-hmm. uh, and see kind of a uh, 
a cultivation of talent. That somebody's like, yo, 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 let me bring my cousin through here. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the biggest impediments is the fact that I'm always DJing in bars. Composition was in a nightclub um, on a empty dead, I believe it was a Tuesday night. Um, the kids under the age of 21 can't come out. Mm. Um, and I wish there was a easier way to set, thing, uh, set these things up where they had uh, I don't even want to call a bar having a cool factor per se um, but having it be nightlife but community center at the same time mm. and have it be a place where everybody can get stuff off their chest but at the same time a place where people are having a good time and people are partying. And every time I've gone to community centers, um, it's a weird mix of like, you know, the guys playing pool on the old donated pool table, um, some kids playing kickball. Mm-hmm. And it's not a real musically oriented place. Um, and I know there are programs out there that um, introduce kids to music production and things like that, but it loses that DIY feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And the whole point of composition was to get these producers out of the bedroom. Right. And get them out there doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, I'd like to see more of a uh, community bent on that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's one thing to... I don't know how. Yeah, it's one thing to just, you know, be by yourself, but like you were saying, it's another thing to move the crowd, which is your main goal in public, you know? Right. Yeah, which is the whole reason why I still DJ on Thursday nights. Mm-hmm. Um, is so that I can go out and play stuff um, and kind of get some feedback. Um, so when I started DJing at Last Call, I didn't know the crowd. Um, it was a new place. Um God, the first two weeks were terrible because I couldn't hear what I was actually playing. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one point where I had one of my channels turned down, and I didn't notice. And there were two girls dancing at the bar. And the reason I didn't notice is you play out of your headphones on your shoulders. Mm -hmm. So you can hear the snare hits Mm -hmm. when you're mixing. And one song ended, and I had faded out of it, and my headphones were loud enough. Mm Mm-hmm that I didn't notice it, and there was no sound coming out of the crappy sound system there. Mm. There were two girls at the bar dancing. And when I realized about two or three bars in that there was no sound coming out of the sound system, I had to call them out and go, do you girls know you're dancing to my headphones? you got to say something. <laughs> and they hadn't noticed. Um, That's hilarious. So, where I was standing, my headphones were as loud as the house system. <laughs> Which isn't the case. I've now figured out the sound system, and it's it's perfectly suitable. Um, but when I first started DJing there, um, in order to understand the crowd and understand what people liked, I had an old, or not an old, a unused um, notebook that I'd gotten a swag from a trade show. Mm-hmm. And you always have a notebook as a DJ to like write down songs, like transitions that work well that you want to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just told people, um, because they're used to this internet DJ thing mm-hmm. where somebody's paying for a service or they're DJing off of Spotify. 
Mm. And they have every song. And I had to explain to people, I'm like, okay, first off, I'm not an internet DJ. I lied. I said I didn't have internet connected to my computer. I did. Um, (laughs) But I'm not going to play a song I haven't heard before. Or that I haven't listened to before. So I'm trying to think of a good example of a song I've heard many times, but I've never sat down and listened to. Um, And of course, everything that comes to mind off the top of my head is something that I have recently sat down and listened to. Um, But one one of the songs that came up was um, Kevin Gates, Two Phones. Mm. Um, I got two phones. Um, Which, not really my favorite song. Mm -hmm. But I just started handing people this orange book. And going, write your requests in here. I'll listen to them this week, and I'll play them next week. Mm-hmm. And people took that the wrong way. I do. I no longer pull out the orange book, as it was called, um, for people to write in because people would write three and four pages of requests. <laughs> Um, they don't understand that I can't listen to three or four pages of songs in a week. Mm-hmm. They think I can download them and then I just hit play. Right. But as you hear, I layer things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to pull one song over another, over another, over another. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next week... I came back, and I played, I believe it was eight songs in 12 minutes. Mm. And suddenly people got it. Mm. And that's what we've got here. Somebody give me some of that Mary Jane.
I surprised a lot of people with that mix because I wasn't familiar with some of these songs. Um, so one of those songs was Butterfly by Crazy Town. <laughs> I had somehow managed to never, ever, ever hear that song. Really? How did that happen? Like I said, if it was on the radio, I was probably pissed off because I didn't have a CD player. <laughs> um, so I didn't listen to a lot of radio. I didn't have MTV. Um, when that song came out, I was very much into underground hip-hop and underground electronics. Um, I wasn't looking to MTV to set my taste. Um, if I was going out to nightclubs, I was going out to nightclubs that played industrial music or hip-hop. Um, so I completely missed that song, which meant when I went to go look for it, um, my go-to source, I'm not going to share it because I don't want it to get shut down, um, is a community of people that share underground music, weird remixes, um, stuff that you're not going to be able to buy after the initial 500 copies of the album are gone. And that's where that remix of Butterfly came from. Not only was it a remix, it was a remix nobody had ever heard. Mm. And it was a remix that bloody made the song good. And it wasn't until I was doing some research, because I'd like to know something about the music and spinning, um, that it was rated as one of the worst songs of all time. And I'm like, really? I like that remix. It's not bad. And then I watched the YouTube video for the original version of the song. <laughs> And good God, if I'd seen that first, I would have thrown the book at the guy who wrote it down. Because <laughs> yeah. it was terrible. But somebody was able to come in a few years after the fact and do an amazing remix of it. But you know that the, um, the, the beat to that song is lifted directly from a Red Hot Chili Peppers song. Yes. Okay. Yes, and the video very much looks like it was directed by the same person that did, uh, what was it, uh, Behind the Sun? Ah. <laughs> um, just, oh, terrible, terrible 90s psychedelics. Um, yes, when everybody had a Pyrex bong with an alien sticker on it. Um, and they probably had a cat in the hat. Um, oh, boy. So by them putting their requests in the book and me not spinning off, you know, what's the commercial version on Spotify, um, I was able to come with something new. And at the same time, play the requests. Now, meanwhile, my buddy BJ, um, shout out to BJ Desbera, um, CVBJ, um, who is going to be doing a California tour coming up here soon. Um, live music matters, as he says. Mm -hmm. I'm really disgusted with everybody co-opting the matters movement because Black Lives Matter, and I don't think anybody riding on the back of that is really uh, paying close enough attention. Um, he decided that he was going to come up with a bunch of requests that I couldn't possibly DJ. <laughs> and the first one he put on the list was a hidden track off of one of Blink-182's album. Mm. Wanna Fuck a Dog. And the first time I heard this song, BJ was playing it. He does acoustic covers. Um, and a bunch of Navy guys are at the bar singing along, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know BJ was as popular. I had no idea that it was a Blink-182 song. <laughs> well, not only did I play Fuck a Dog, 
I learned every break and every bar cut in Fuck a Dog. And it became a battle cry while I was DJing that somebody at the bar would go, Spicer, fuck a dog. And I would drop this track over whatever was playing. Um, and would never have thought of doing that if it hadn't been for this orange book of requests, which was a great way to bring um, the community into the music. Um he requested the Cantina Band uh, by Star Wars, which you were in that mix. Um, but he didn't specify that it had to be from the Star Wars movie. That's why what you hear is the disco version of the Star Wars melody from, I believe, 1979. Um, mm-hmm. Nice. Um, but he also requested some things that did not make it into that mix um, that were just almost completely impossible to spin, um, such as one with the underdog by terror. Um, the only way I figured out how to mix that is to just take, cause it's just fast grinding metal. Um, but another one that he requested, this was, like I said, Cinco de Mile. So before the launch of Pokemon go, he wanted the Pokemon thing. And, ooh, okay, well, let's see what I can find. Well, like I said, I work with this community of people who specialize in very hard-to-find music. Um, and I found this cover of the Pokemon theme by Dr. Darren Banter, um, which... I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's like the Nick K version of Pokemon, but somewhere in that realm. Yeah, another gentleman, my friend Andy, um, does really um, interesting and elaborate, uh, I don't want to call it puppetry, he does stage and set design, mm -hmm. um, and theatrical designs. Does great stuff. Um, he's been doing a uh, Halloween block party every year for, I believe, the last decade. And one of the things he's got is an actual, like, smoke-breathing dragon. Um, he grabbed the book, and he decided that what he was going to throw at me was just tons and tons and tons of really obscure music. Mm. And what surprised him was I knew a lot of it. But what he also threw was a whole bunch of cartoon covers. Um, and, wow, that's weird. Mm. The weirder part was Ryan actually had those CDs. <laughs> um, but um, one, of the, uh, one of the songs he requested, um, he just put down, he requested, it was by Giants. What was it? It was They Might Be Giants. And it was one of my favorite songs from my army years, um, Birdhouse in Your Soul. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably one of their most popular songs ever. Um, well, I take liberties, and being a huge They Might Be Giants fan, I actually had a techno cover of S-E-X-X-Y, mm. which I believe was off their Factory Showroom album. Mm-hmm. But again, it's one of those weird songs that just really didn't make it into rotations. Mm. So I guess to uh, end it up talking about that juxtaposition of songs, 
Um, I've always been a huge fan of positive hip-hop. So political hip-hop that exposes, like, the wrongs of society, um, that talk about the realities of what's going on, uh, the black people's CNN, Mm -hmm. uh, the urban CNN. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was back there in San Francisco... DJing popular music. Um, one of the uh, unfortunately very popular songs was Project Chick. And at the time, an album had just dropped, or a three album set called 69 Love Songs. Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard Project Chick, um, I was part of a number of record pools, so I was getting free 12 inch singles given to me every two weeks by various record labels. I got Project Chick thrown at me. <laughs> and my first thought when I put it on, I had been listening um, to the magnetic fields. And I thought, how fucking romantic. <laughs> and this came out of it. Basically, I just like to play. 
um, and play with music. Music was my first love. Um, and I joked that, um, I'm a kind of insane dancer. Um, and people used to always ask me, like, where'd you learn to dance so well? And I'd say, well, music's my first love. Dancing is the closest I can come to making love to it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I use more crass terms in my youth. Um, but DJing and remixing is as close as I can come to having children. Um, <laughs> you've, I think you may have heard me play guitar once. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an abomination. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to spread those genes into the pool. I'm content mixing music and making statements. Right. Um, and playing with what's out there. Mm-hmm. Seeing if you can do uh, new and innovative things with it. Mm-hmm. Do you understand people who are resistant to have their music remixed? Yes. Absolutely. So would you um, would would you not remix someone's songs if you knew that they were against it? No, I wait for them to send me the cease and desist notice, or actually they send my hosting provider a cease and desist notice. Um, I'm probably the only person who has had over 20 songs removed from MySpace. Wow. Um, I have had multiple SoundCloud accounts deleted. <laughs> um, I put them together. I mix them. Um, they're not going to come to my club. If they do come to my club, hey, maybe I can make them dance. <laughs> um, but um, I believe that all of my work falls under the uh, banner of fair use. I am making filler culture. And because I'm not making any money off of it, there's nothing for them to come after me on. They can't say that, oh, well, you made $100 off that album. You owe us 125 it's no I didn't even make money DJing your music um if anything go after BMI and ASCAP for the licensing fees from the venues that are paying these license fees and get it from there um but no I understand completely people who don't want to have their music uh, remixed Mm -hmm. um a Really good commentary on this. Um, and I'm going to give you one last song before we close it out for the night, mm-hmm. um, which was actually the lead-in that I did for the um, Rocket Mixes album. Mm-hmm. But one of the good commentaries that I've heard of this was from, um, I cannot remember the DJ's name, but if you Google Ill Submarine, mm-hmm. this brilliant DJ did a mashup album of the Beatles and the Beastie Boys. Mm. And in it, they have a sample, and I believe it's Paul McCartney, saying, honestly, I love the bootlegs. Mm. Because in 30 or 40 years, when it's time, I can say, no, that's not your music. It's mine. Mm. Um... So if Nelly wants to come at me, hi Nelly, I know you listen to Rob Burgess's show, so go ahead, um, get my phone number from Rob, give me a call, I'm totally down, we can collabo, I'm down to do a remix with you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if Madonna calls, tell her I'm not at home, um, which is another rich story, but I'll leave that for another time. <laughs> um, yeah, if, if they want to come at me and tell me to stop, that's fine. But it's a little bit like going back to that 
um, start beef with somebody big and make them say your name, mm-hmm. I'm not big enough that anybody's ever going to say my name. So I appreciate people who don't want their music remixed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not trying to get the remixes out in Mixmag or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a better residency at a club with a capacity of 37 people mm-hmm. these days. I'm an old man who just <laughs> likes music. Um, and I am very, very sorry, Rob, if this episode of your podcast gets pulled offline <laughs> for all of the copyright violations. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to leave you with this. Um, a Pirate Nation it is a combination of Creative Commons licensed music, um, public domain music where the uh, copyright is lapsed, and a book by Lawrence Lessig that talks about copyright warriors mm. and how music of the 21st century is no longer a creative process. It's a process of hiring lawyers. Watching MTV, the cool brainwashing 12-year-old and younger station that hides behind a slick image. We're so cool that we decide what's cool. And now MTV News, the news that is single-handedly dumbing down our country, which is cool. At that forum, we have Betsy Strang from the MTV Network speaking about how her uh, outfit has been exploiting audiences. We live in a cut-and-paste culture enabled by technology. Copyrighted, so don't copy me. Tinkering with culture. Audiences exploiting MTV. Tinkering with culture. Audiences tinkering with MTV. Audiences tinkering with MTV. I want to produce my own culture. I want to be entertained. I want to produce my own culture. I don't want to be entertained. MTV exploiting culture. Tink, tink. It's non-commercial in a world where most media is commercial. For the first 100 years of the American Republic, America did not honor foreign copyrights. We were born in this sense of pirates. Anyone who has an idea can do this. Let's open the mix of rights so that people are free to build upon our culture. Free to add or mix as they see fit. America of pirates nation. Free to cut and paste as they see fit. America of pirates nation. Free to cut and paste as they see fit. The record industry was born of another kind of piracy. Radio was also born of piracy. Cable TV was also born of a kind of piracy. Every generation welcomes the pirates from the last. Every generation until now. Let's alter the mix of our culture. All rights reserved. No rights reserved. Either property or anarchy. These early decisions went in favor of the pirates. America, a pirate nation. Common sense is with the copyright warriors. Musicians are able to string together mixes of sound never before imagined. Let's alter the mix of our culture. Common sense is with the copyright warriors. That means this movement must begin to sleep. It must recruit a significant number of parents, teachers, librarians, creators, authors, musicians, filmmakers, scientists. All to tell this story in their own words and to tell their neighbors why this battle is so important. People are being spoken to and not being allowed to speak to themselves. Anyone who has an idea can do this.
these creations are technically illegal. Even if the creators want them to be illegal, the cost of complying with the law is impossibly high. Either way, the creative process is a process of paying lawyers. The innovators who developed the technology to record other people's works were sponging upon the toil, the work, the talent, and genius of American composers. A pirate nation.